This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Good morning. I'm looking forward to some time together with you guys today. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life, and I'm going to guide us as we continue to engage with God this morning. And I just want you to know how thankful I am to be sharing some time with you this morning, and how glad I am that you're here. I know that there are a hundred other things you could be doing today, and you chose to invest some time here in this community as we engage with God together. And I just want to tell you thank you. Uh, In that, how many of you are excited to be at church today? Yeah. How many of you are excited uh, that it's opening day for baseball? Yeah. How many of you are excited that we're wrapping up the final four? Okay. All right. Well, good to know. How many of you are excited uh, that we can actually get a sunburn this weekend? Anybody? Yeah. Praise God for sun. My goodness. I went to the beach yesterday and loved it. And my wife said to me, Kevin, you haven't been outside like all winter. Put on sunscreen. And I said, of course I will. Of course I will. Uh, In time. Give me some time. And I started digging a hole with the kids. And then I started reading a little little Harry Potter and... uh, yeah, it was good. And uh, don't judge me. Don't judge me. It's good. I'm on books. I'm on, I'm on the last book, book seven. Watch out. Uh, anyway, so like two hours in, she's like, how about that sunscreen? I'm like, oh yeah, I'll put on some sunscreen. Oh my gosh, it hurts so bad. And you guys have been hugging me and I'm so burned and it hurts so bad. So please hug me softly. Okay. I'm your pastor. Look at me. I'm not built for strength. I'm built for speed. You can't be hugging me hard when I'm sunburned. That's all I'm going to say, just for the love of God. We're a community. This is supposed to be, you know, a safe place. Just don't be, don't be shaking my back like that. Some of you guys, like, woo. All right, all right, I got that out of the way. I'm just, oh man, it's going to be a good day. It's going to be a good day today. We're wrapping up our series called Love Actually, where we have been pressing into this idea that there are two main views when it comes to marriage and relationships, two main models, if you will. Uh, and the first one is this contract model. I talked on it on week one. We've touched on it throughout our time together. The contract model is basically this. You do your part. I do my part. If we both do our parts well, uh, we will we'll build trust with each other. We will begin to appreciate each other. We will build intimacy based on everyone doing their part and we'll live happily ever after. The problem with that is the minute things get busy, we go down to the easiest, most base common thing we can do, and we start blaming each other. Well, you didn't do your part. Well, you didn't do your part. And the contract kind of breaks apart. And that's what we see in the world today, that the contract model is not working, even though it looks fair on the outside. When you really press into it in life, five years, 10 years, 20 years later, when, you're, when it's 3 a.m. and your newborn baby is crying, and you're trying to figure out, well, who was the last one up last hour? The contract breaks down. And so we said there's another model, and it's, it's, a, it's a God model for marriage. And it says this, I'm going to put she before me in this marriage, or I'm going to put he before me in this marriage. And it's not fair. It's just not fair. But we've said it might just get you the very thing you want, which is this. It might actually build intimacy with your spouse. Uh, it, it honors God because it's the way God designed marriage. And three, it might be your best shot at getting what you actually want, which is your spouse to then put you before them. And in a marriage where both couple is putting he before me or she before me, all of a sudden together we're forming 
a marriage where unity happens and partnership happens. And so we've been pressing into this for the last five weeks or so, talking about how to build safety in a relationship, talking about uh, who, whose fault is it when we get into a fight? I thought Pastor Ron did a great job when he talked about that, because when we get into a fight, what do we say? Whose fault is it? Well, it's your fault, because if you weren't here, we wouldn't be fighting. But the truth is, that actually there's something going on in here that causes fights. And James talked to us about that. There's something inside of us that's causing these fights. And we have an enemy to our marriage. And the enemy is also causing fights. So who's to blame? Well, there's an enemy trying to break us apart. And there's something in here that needs to be dealt with. So we talked about that. We've talked about communication. We've talked about uh, all sorts of different pieces. How to, how to really affair-proof your marriage. Which is not to build a bunch of fences and boundaries, but actually to, we said, abide. To press into a relationship with God, a relationship with spouse, a few key friendships. And now as we wrap this up, I want to kind of put a bow on it. If you've missed any of these and that sounds a little bit intriguing to you, you could go on to newlifepetaluma.org uh, and you could, you could check us out there. Am I getting a feedback? Is that just my ear? Could just be me. My ears are ringing. Woo! 36, 36. It's taking me down. Some of you are saying, if you think 36 is bad, wait till 46, or 56, or 66. <sighs> okay, okay. I'm radiating heat is what it is. It's causing feedback with the sound. I want to put a bow on it today, and I want to talk about something today. And this is actually outside of marriage, okay? So if you're here and you're single and you never want to get married, or you've been married, been there, done that, no thank you, not for me, um, This is actually for all of us, because this thing I want to talk about today is the thing that probably more than any other thing has us choosing out. You can pick your area of out, choosing out of our relationship with God, giving up, saying, I tried it, been there, done that. Choosing out of a church community. This is the thing that has us maybe more than anything else, choosing out of marriages, been there, done that, tried it, didn't work. Choosing out of friendships. If you find yourself bouncing from friendship to friendship, and it's good for the first couple months or, or the first year, but then something happens and it just becomes too hard and you find new friends. If you're a serial friend, this could be the thing. And here's the thing. And, and it's so deeply ingrained in a North American culture that when I say it, you're going to think, well, that's Right? That I should think that way. I should be that way. I should interact with the world that way. And yet it's counter to the story of Jesus. And the thing I'm talking about today is something that I've, I don't know if someone said this before, but I've coined the phrase. So I'm going to go ahead and trademark that right now. We're going to call it destination thinking. Destination thinking. It's a, it's a mindset uh, that should be in your notes. By the way, I totally forgot in all the fun we were having, uh, you have teaching notes in your program. They've got the Bible verses we're looking at. You're going to want to grab those and use those. We've also got this card that says start here. We're going to use that later today too. So go ahead and grab that. I wouldn't waste your time. Get it ready. Listen, if you get a little bored at some point in the next 25 minutes, just go ahead and fill out this card. That's a perfect time to do it. But there's this thing called destination thinking. Destination thinking goes something like this. Because I know the ideal destination, I should now be at the ideal destination. This is the scariest thing 
about being a pastor that teaches towards application, towards action, is that I, I spend hours every week crafting messages, thinking through things, and I boil it down to 30 minutes that tries to move us somewhere. We get an idea, a paradigm, and then I try to give us some action steps. But the, the, the scariest thing is that we begin to think, well, now I know this new thing, so I should naturally be doing this new thing. Let's put it in the context of this series. In my humble but correct opinion, this has been an amazing teaching series. Thank you, Mark. Mark agrees. His wife didn't cheer, but you could both, we'll hope that she also agrees. Let's say you, you, this has been a great series for, for sake of argument. And you're 15 years into a marriage that has been living in a contract model. And week one, when we talked about it, you recognized, oh my goodness, there is contract thinking throughout our marriage. And you're 15 years into a marriage that's got some, some lack of intimacy, some, uh, some disconnect. We're more, we're more closely connected to housemates who run a house together, who raise uh, fairly functioning children than we are to people who are in love, who have intimacy and connection and are bonded together. You're 15 years into that. And then you hear a five-week series. And you think, well, because now I know a new way, I should be doing a new way. And all of a sudden, we start to think, That knowledge should equal transformation. And the scariest thing about that is it leaves us feeling like like we're failing just because we're not perfect. Does that make sense? If I know what I should do, and I'm not there yet, for whatever reason, because I've got 15 years of marriage that's been going one direction, and five weeks ain't going to fix 15 years. And so Sunday sounds great, but Monday rolls around and things are back to the way they were, if we get in this mindset, it leaves us at the end of a series like this thinking, what's the point? I just heard what marriage could be, what marriage should be, what my marriage isn't. And honestly, this scares me that we might actually walk out of the series thinking, I'm not going to stay in this marriage. I'm not going to stick because I just saw what could be and I'm not currently there. And this pervades us, especially if you're um, very much like a a type A driven or a perfectionist type, or if things come easily to you. So my daughter, God bless her, she she got her mother's brains and good looks and musical talent. She got a lot from her. She likes to talk to people. She got that from me. (laughs) But my daughter is in third grade. And she went the first 17 weeks of school not missing one spelling word on one spelling test. Never happened in my life. (laughs) And so we're doing spelling lesson after day one. She's like, I got it. I got it. Okay, we're good. She came home two weeks ago. She had missed one spelling word on one spelling test. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking you got an A on that spelling test. That's fantastic. You missed six or seven or ten, then you're at Finkbeiner level, but you missed one out of 15. That's great. You know what she did when she came home? She came home embarrassed to show us that spelling test. Because anything less than perfection in her mind was failure. That is destination thinking. 
anything less than perfect must naturally be failing. So here's the question. How long would you fail before you gave up? Pick your, pick your area right now in your marriage. How long will you fail in your marriage before you give up? How long will you fail at your job? before? If anything less than perfect is failing, and that's where destination thinking takes us. I know what's true, therefore I should be doing what's true. If anything less than perfect is failing, how long will you fail before you give up? How long will you fail before you choose out? Choose out of your marriage. Choose out of your family. How long would you fail before you chose out of your relationship with God? God promises freedom. I don't ex- I'm not experiencing full freedom. How, this is just for you. You're not going to raise your hand. Just how long? See, there is a very real enemy. Jesus talks about him all the time. He says the devil is coming in to steal, to kill, to destroy, to rob, to devour. And one of his main tactics is he tries to convince us that destination thinking is the right way to go about life. And so we gather knowledge and we assume that gathering knowledge should naturally translate into transformation, not someday, today. And so we walk out of church feeling worse than we did when we walked in. Let me ask you this. How long would you go to church if you walked out every week feeling worse than you did when you walked in? A month? Two months? Some of us were raised in that type of church. We were raised leaving with a sense of guilt, thinking that that guilt would actually bring us back in the next week. And for some of us, it did. But it did not lead us to freedom. And so Jesus gives us another way. I want to look at the way Jesus actually interacts with people because anytime we put more on ourselves than Jesus puts on us, we're setting ourselves up for trouble. Notice what happens in Mark chapter 1. Jesus is gathering a group of, they become his closest friends, his disciples, his followers. These are the people that Jesus plans to invest himself in for three years before he, he dies, he raises, he goes to heaven and leaves the church to them. These guys are his plan for the future of his movement. And you would think if anybody needed to get people in a destination mindset, it would be Jesus, thinking, I've got three years, you've got to get this figured out, we've got to get it right. But notice what Jesus says to his disciples as he draws them in. He says, as Jesus was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, and they were casting their nets into the sea because they were fishermen. Just regular, ordinary, salt-of-the-earth fishermen. And Jesus said to them, and I want you to underline this next part, follow me. And get this next part as well. I will make you become. Put a star next to that, circle that, underline it. That's going to be a big idea for us. I will make you become fishers of men. He's saying, you were fishermen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you become people who find people. Jesus says, I found you, and found people find people. I found you. Come with me, and I'm going to make you become something extraordinary. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. Did you notice what Jesus does? He invites them into partnership. He invites them into a journey. 
a few weeks ago, I said, if you really want to affair-proof your marriage, remember Jesus' words. Jesus said, abide in me. And he uses a, uh, a vineyard analogy. Abide in me or remain in me and you will bear much fruit. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. With me, you will bear good fruit. Jesus is using the same idea here. This time he's saying, walk with me. Live with me. See, the disciples didn't just come to church once a week. They, they were with Jesus around a campfire, talking, laughing, sharing stories. They were walking down dirt roads together, having conversations that you can only have when, when your phone is turned off and the TV's off and you're just cruising down a dirt road. And in the process, he says to them, I will make you become. And that word become, it, it's, it's got this idea of along the way. It's a, it's a present progressive. He says, as we're walking together, you will Begin a process of becoming something new. And that word become literally means bring something out of nothing. You didn't have anything here. And Jesus says, as you walk with me, I will make you become. I will bring something out of nothing. Let me ask you a question. Are you here today and you're thinking, there's an area of my life where it's just so hard? Maybe it is your marriage. Maybe it's finances, maybe it's friendship, maybe it's your, your vocation. You're thinking, this is so hard. It feels like there's nothing left. Jesus says, walk with me and I will bring something out of nothing. Could some of us use a little bit of that today? A little bit of Jesus taking the basis of what we have and us saying to him, here I am, God. Here I am. I'm giving you myself. I'm walking with you. Would you make something out of this nothing? And that's exactly what Jesus did. He walked with these guys. And here's the crazy thing. Even at Jesus' death, these guys had not reached the destination. We're going to talk on Easter. Do you know that Easter's only two weeks away? Yeah, when did that happen? In two weeks, we're talking about Jesus, arguably his best friend, his closest follower, the person who Jesus would plan to kind of be the center point of his movement after he left. And on the day that Jesus needed him most, he was nowhere to be found. And we're going to talk about the story of this guy just failing at that critical moment. And then Jesus calling him back into the journey. Because they didn't, they didn't ultimately achieve at the end of three years. Because for them, it wasn't a destination. It was a journey. And that's what Jesus invites us into. We're calling it a journey mindset. In a journey mindset, we learn how to walk in partnership with God on a lifelong journey of becoming. See, life is not about hearing the right thing, knowing the right thing, doing the right thing. We can white-knuckle our way through life, hearing the right thing, knowing the right thing, doing the right thing. But this Christian life is actually better than that. It's about partnering with God, walking with God, journeying with God, and then allowing God to form in us something out of what was nothing. 
to help us become who we were created to be. But for the sake of today, I just want to say this. You are in process. I am in process. It does not make you a failure. Your marriage is in process. It does not mean you're failing at your marriage. And that's not my opinion. That's actually God's word on the story. I want to look at Paul. Paul's one of my favorite guys in the New Testament. He wrote a lot of the New Testament. This is a guy who God took... um, really a lot of nothing and made something great. Paul used to persecute Jesus' followers. He had them dragged out. He had, he had dads and moms and pastors dragged away from their families, thrown in prison. He had them murdered. And then he meets Jesus on the road, and Jesus grabs him in his life and transforms him. And then Paul, as he walked with Jesus, would go around and he would start these churches in various areas. And he would stay and he would raise up leaders. And then uh, he would kind of be pin pals with them. He'd write letters back and forth to these churches because he couldn't just send out a tweet to everybody in all of his churches he planted. He had to actually take pen to paper and he would write letters out. And Paul fell in love with this city called Corinth. And he was there for about 18 months, planting this church, building up leaders, pouring into them. And then he leaves the church. But over time, he wrote various letters to the church And this church in Corinth had destination thinking. We know the right thing. We should do the right thing. If we're not, here's what they thought. If we're not doing the right thing, well, then screw it. We're going to do whatever we want. And Paul writes to them to change their thinking. Notice what he says in in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, anyone who belongs to Jesus Christ, anyone who has said, you know what? I can't do this life on my own. I need God. God's love, God's forgiveness, God's unmerited favor, God's spirit living in me to transform me. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. And then he uses journey thinking. He says, the old life is gone, a new life has begun. And I think he uses that language intentionally. He doesn't say the old life is gone And a new life has reached completion. The old life is gone, and in this new life, you figured it all out. The old life is gone, now you've graduated. He he doesn't say any of that. He says, the old life is gone, a new life has begun. Which means that each of us who walks with God is in a process, no matter how old you are, 13, 30, 90. Each of us who walks with God is in a process of this old life, with its old ways of thinking, with its old ways of interacting with people, with its old ways of understanding God, is dying, and a new life is starting. And he uses language of that because he wants us to remember what it was like when we were kids, and we were learning new things, and we were trying new things. And we do, listen, we do this really well with kids. I volunteer in my son's kindergarten class every Friday, and one of the things I do is I help the kids uh, read. Um, and you know what I don't do in that class? I don't sit there. I was with Kate on Friday, and, and Kate was really, she was working on blends, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and she was like, you know what I didn't do? I didn't say it's the stupid, not tahe, Okay. We all know it's not tahe. Does that look like tahe? No. That looks like the. It's a sight word. It's on the tree. I, I didn't say that. You're welcome. Your pastor is a gracious man. Quick to listen, slow to anger, and abounding in love. You know what I did? I sat there with Kate as she wrestled through the, those three letters that could change her life. 
I said, well, let's try it like this. That's a blend. Let's try it. She was like, okay, now put it together. She said, the. I said, that's it. You got it. Let's go to word two. The whole book was like that. Listen. <laughs> but we don't sit there and say, you are so dumb. Figure it out. It's the. It's not supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. I could understand you not spelling that. This is the. Why? Because a new life has begun. And in a new life, you're learning new things. And we expect that from children. But then we become adults and we think we're so sophisticated. And even if other people don't put it on us, if we don't get it right the first time or the second time or the 20th time, don't we say, you're such an idiot. It's the... And Jesus is saying, you're doing more to yourself than I ever did to my disciples. I walked with them on a journey. I taught them on a journey. I trained them in a process so that they could become who they were always meant to be. And the word we're looking for in here is, it's a church word, so don't discount it the minute you hear it. It's grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It's grace. That God gives us grace when he drew us to himself. But God gives us grace, this unmerited favor, as he teaches us how to live a new life. What I want to do is just talk for a few minutes about what it looks like to live a new life. Because living a new life means dying to an old way of thinking and being raised up to a new way of thinking. And there are at least three lies that we need to die to if we're going to live in this new life. And the first is this. We need to die to the lie that things are never going to change. Destination thinking has us believing it's this way, it's been this way, it's always going to be this way. My marriage has been bad for 10 years, it's always going to be bad. My kids are out of control. They're always going to be out of control. This addiction hasn't broken. It's never going to go away. This greed keeps me holding on to things and stuff and money. I'm never going to be able to break free and live generously. It's never going to change. And our thought is, if it's never going to change, then why keep trying to change it? Can I tell you that's a lie? God can change all things. That same guy, Paul, was writing from a jail cell one day. He had a reason to think it was never going to change, that he was never going to get out, that he'd be stuck in this hole forever. And Paul said this, Philippians 4.13. Listen, if you went to a high school like mine, this was on every football player's letterman's jacket because they took it totally out of context, and their mom made them put a Bible verse on it. I said, do you know what that that is? They'd be like, no. I said, yeah, me either. But here's what Paul says. I can do all things through him, through Jesus, who gives me the strength. What he's saying is things can change. It doesn't have to be like this forever. Your marriage isn't hopeless. Your child isn't a lost cause. That friendship isn't so badly fractured that it can never come back. Things can change. Sometimes when we get in this mindset, we we focus only on what isn't happening. I find that when I get stressed out, when I get busy, I'm in a busy season right now of life. When I get busy, I only focus on what has to be done, what isn't getting done, and what isn't working. Anybody else like that? 
Because if I can figure out what isn't getting done, what has to be done, what isn't working, I can start doing it. So I was driving to meet my buddy for coffee uh, on, on Wednesday morning, and this thought crossed my mind. What is going well right now? Like, what am I happy about? Because all I could think as I was driving to work was all the things I had to do. I don't have time for this coffee. I need to go get this work done. And God reminded me, your family's finally healthy again after being sick again. You're going to meet up with a friend who actually loves you, who you love, and share coffee with them for an hour. Who gets to do that? Your wife is taking a new job that she loves, that's, that's causing her to grow and stretch. Your kids, Landon had just had two days of kindness, two days in a row. I'm sorry. We can celebrate that. Yeah, it's the, and I'll take it. All these things. And so I went to my buddy, and he was a little stressed out too. I said, hey, what, what's good that's going on in your life right now? Like, what good stuff? Then he started to list it off. I'm telling you, it changed our whole day. It could have been the caffeine, but I think it was that. I think it was this thing. And I'm reminded um, in that same letter in Philippians, Paul says this, finally, brothers and sisters, it's not in your notes. I'm sorry, because I just thought about it on Friday as I was, as I was getting ready for this message. But write down Philippians 4, 8. Philippians 4, 8. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if there's anything excellent and praiseworthy, here's what he says. Think about such things. Think about such things. Now listen, if you're going through a tough phase in any area of your life, it's easy to look at the things that aren't working. Could I challenge you this week? Try to find something that is working. Try to find something he is doing right. She is doing right. Is your job tough? Try to find something you you like about it. It could change your mindset completely. The second lie that we need to transition out of is this one. It's all my fault. It's all my fault. Most of us, and I've talked about this once before, most of us have this internal swing that when we get some, something's not going right, when something's hard, we start off with, it's all my fault. And it puts this weight of condemnation on top of us. And none of us was meant to live this way. Jesus came to remove the condemnation and the shame and the guilt from us so that we could live in freedom by his forgiveness and by his grace. But we're not meant to live with this condemnation of it's all my fault. So usually, here's how it works. You get in a fight with your spouse. Let's just say hypothetically, you get in a fight with your spouse and you start off like, why did I do that? It used to work out like this for me. We'd get in a, a disagreement because, uh, you know, we didn't fight. We just disagreed loudly. And we'd get in a disagreement in our first year of marriage, and I would leave, and I'd get in the car, and I'd take a drive. And about 10 minutes into that drive, I was just reciting everything Maria was doing wrong and why it was her fault and why I was righteous and holy, and I'm pretty sure there was a halo around me at that time. And then about 15 minutes in, this realization hit, oh my gosh, it's actually all my fault. I'm a big jerk, totally immature. Just listen to your wife and be humble once. By the way, I wouldn't have been sunburnt had I done that this weekend. I just want to clarify. She told me to put on sunscreen. I didn't do it. And so I think it's all my fault. And then this condemnation would hit, and I'm not meant to live that way. So then I would swing back over and be like, well, no, it's actually all her fault. Because no one's meant to live here. It's all her fault. But then reality sinks in. It's like, well, no, no, it's actually all my fault. No, it's all her fault. No, it's all my fault. What if... What if freedom is not found in figuring out how much fault should be placed on each person? What if that's actually not where freedom is found? 
What if freedom is found in understanding the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God? Let's assume for a second it's all your fault, all your fault. She didn't do anything. He didn't do anything. They were literally sitting there reading the Bible, serving you while taking care of the kids simultaneously. And you were a jerk, all your fault. Notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says, Jesus was talking to me, and I was asking Jesus, Jesus, take away this thing that is plaguing me. And Jesus said to me, my grace, my unmerited favor is sufficient. And that word sufficient literally means it's unfailing. It will not fail. It is strong and powerful. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect where? In your, when it's your fault. My power is made perfect even when it's your fault. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness. I delight in insults. Could you imagine delighting in insults? I delight in hardships and persecutions and difficulties. Why? Because when I am weak, then I am strong in Christ. The answer to this, it's all my fault, is to get rid of fairness altogether. It does not matter whose fault it is. I remember talking with our executive pastor a couple years ago, and I was pretty sure one of us had made a mistake, and I was pretty sure I knew who it was. Let's just say that. <laughs> I just got her attention. Uh, and, and so I walked into this meeting. I was pretty, I was, I, was, I was spooled up. And we start going back and forth, and she says, Kevin, what if it doesn't matter whose fault it was? I said, well, it actually does matter because I'm pretty sure I know whose fault it is. She's like, what if it doesn't matter whose fault it is? What if our goal right now is to stay in unity together and to figure out the solution? That's some wisdom there. So I sat for a few minutes. I said, oh, oh, all right. There could be some wisdom. But okay, I'm just going to let it go. In the end, it was probably at least, you know, 3% my fault. In the end. But... But it, ulti- <laughs> but it ultimately didn't matter whose fault it was, did it? Because the grace of God that drew us to him when we were enemies of God, the grace of God that brought us to himself, that forgave us, that filled us with his Holy Spirit, is the same grace that he gives us every day of our lives. Most of us are under this false assumption that it's God's grace that brings us to salvation, and it's our job to prove to God that that was a good investment. That's not our job. It was God's grace that brings us to this point where he saves us, and it's God's grace that sustains us and transforms us in this journey of life. His grace is sufficient for you. And fairness doesn't have anything to do with it. Grace is undeserved favor. And when we experience the grace of God on us, we can then pass the grace of God on to others. And the third lie is this. I'm the only one who's ever experienced this. I'm going to say something. You might want to write it down. You don't have to. You are unique. Your experience is not. 
You are, you, you are an individual. You are unique. Only thumbprint. You're like a little snowflake. But listen, your experience is not. The devil tries to get you to think that your experience is unique. We're the only one who's ever failed in our marriage. I'm the only one who can't break this sin. We're the only one whose kids are, are losing it right now. We're, I'm the only one who can't find a job. The devil wants us to think that our experiences are unique so that he can bring us alone by ourselves and condemn us and leave us trapped in shame. Jesus wants us to know that while you are unique, your experience is not. And the antidote to this lie is understanding that others have gone before you. That others actually have had very, very, very difficult points in their marriage that have lasted for seasons, for years, and come out on the other end stronger. That others before you have struggled with loneliness because they've sat through teaching series on marriage and they've thought, I'm never going to find someone. I feel alone. They've struggled with loneliness and they've learned what it means to find true partnership and true friendship in every age and stage of life. Others have struggled with debt and discovered what it looks like to find freedom on the other end. You are unique. Your story is not. The answer, community. Community. Normalize your story. I encourage every, I was just talking to a a young married couple. I said, get into a life group. Get into a life group. Please, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you're studying. Be in there so that other people can tell you you're normal. That fight's normal. That feeling is normal. You're not alone. You're not unique. You're, you are unique. Your story is not. Get in community. Here's what I love, and I'm going to leave us here. Acts chapter 2 tells the story of the early church. And as I read this story of the early church, I want you to notice how much communal language is in here. They, them, together, eating Notice what happened in the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. That means they gathered together. And to breaking of bread, that means they ate together. And to prayer, they did it together. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold their possessions. i got to get my shoes off. That's ten. They sold their property and possessions. They gave to anyone in need. Every day they met together in the temple courts. They broke bread together in homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They praised God. They had the favor of all the people. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. God designed us to live in community. That communal language happens at least, at least 12 to 15 times just in that little passage there. Why do you think that is? Because the devil tries to isolate and tell you no one would ever understand what you're going through. No one's ever come out of this. You're the only one who's ever felt this. And God says, you are unique, but your story is not. Others have experienced triumph. Others have experienced this pain. Others have experienced this heartache, and you will get through on the other side. That is the answer to this lie. Find a community, a safe place to belong, to be known, to share your story. As we wrap up this whole series, if I could dream for us, I would dream of a community where it's safe. It's safe to come in and process, 
where it's okay not to be okay. It's okay. The disciples walked through a three-year journey with Jesus, and they had ups and downs and ins and outs and times when they got it and times when they didn't, and Jesus seemed okay walking in process with them. And I want that for you. I want that kind of grace for all of us. Destination thinking only has us either perfect or failing. But God says you're a child who's learning a new way of living. And that new way of living takes time. And getting rid of that old way of living takes time as well. In two weeks, it's Easter. And on Easter, we're going to start a journey of what it looks like to weave our way into partnership with God. We're going to talk about the fact that discipleship, which is this process of knowing and understanding and partnering with and following God, is actually not a formula. Take five classes and then you're done. You're mature. You've figured it out. It's actually a journey that we take with God. And that's going to take us all the way through the summer because it's a whole narrative and a mindset that we want to shift. And it's going to be great. So I'm looking forward to that with you. If you're here today, and you've never said yes to Jesus. You've never started this journey. It is a journey that never actually has a, a, a finish date. We walk with God through this entire life, but it has some level of a start date. When we acknowledge God, I can't do this on my own. I want to partner with you. If that's you today, I want to give you a chance to do that right now, just to partner with him, to say yes, to acknowledge the fact that you want to walk with God on this journey. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to give you a chance to do that. Would you join me as we pray? As we wrap up this series, Lord, I pray that you would use it in the context of a journey. I pray for, uh, for every person in here, for couples who might feel like they're on the brink, that, that today would give us an opportunity to give ourselves the space and the grace to be in process. I pray for uh, each of us, no matter where we are, if there's this sort of destination thinking that has clicked in, that you would help us to free ourselves from that, to find freedom in walking with you. As you, God, form in us this new life. So would you show us how to do that? As we continue to pray, if you're here and you're ready to commit your life to God, to start this journey with him, you can pray this simple prayer uh, which is simply an acknowledgement to God of something that's stirring inside of you and a journey that you want to take. You can say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you are inviting me into a journey. I believe that you love me and that love caused you to give your life for me, to break the power of sin and death and destruction once and for all so that I could live with you as a new person. So Holy Spirit, would you come and guide me? Would you show me what it looks like to take this journey with you? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.